So at the beginning of the year, in both our first hour, our worship hour, and then the second hour, Discovering God, we are doing what we do each year. We're focusing on the vision for our church in the, the coming year. And we've called the series Body Life 2020 Vision. So today and this hour, but also next week in both hours, in the month of January, we're going to be looking at the importance of the church's work and each of our involvement in it. In two weeks, Pastor Rich is going to lead in this hour regarding a vital aspect of our collective ministry, namely funding the ministry. He'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Just to let you know some other things that are coming up then after we finish this uh, Body Life 2020 Vision Series. On February the 2nd, we're going to have Dave and Betsy Corning here from the Chicago area. They run a ministry called Entrusted Ministries, and it's a it's a parenting ministry. So they're going to be here on that Sunday during this hour. The day before, on February the 1st, Saturday, they are going to be here for a seminar. So I encourage all of you parents or would-be parents to, to be here for that. It's going to be from 10 to 2. We're going to provide lunch as well. So we need to know who's coming. If you go onto the website, you'll see a banner for that. You click on that and you're, you can register for it. So please do that over the next few weeks. So Saturday, February 1st, 10 to 2, Entrusted Ministries, Dave and Betsy Corning. The next day during this hour, uh, they will be leading as, as well. And then the week after that, on February 9th, we'll start a new series in here. And I'll be doing a series called Change of, of Heart, looking at what the Bible teaches about how we can change and how we can help other cha- others change, change of heart. But in the uh, meantime, in the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at what the Bible says about God's church and our role in it. So you're getting a heavy dose of the church. You got it from me last week. You got some from Pastor Larry in the first hour. We're going to get some more today. But I hope uh, by the time I'm finished that uh, with everything that we've said thus far, you'll see why we're doing that. Why such an emphasis on the church and our involvement in it. Let me start it with a a story. Uh, He sat in his New York City office, unable to imagine why a small company in Seattle was buying large numbers of a certain type of drip coffee maker. They were simple devices, plastic cones set on a thermos, but this company was buying more of them than Macy's. Now, the year was 1981, and the salesman had been successful selling a line of kitchen products and housewares. He thought he knew his market as well as anybody, but something was different about these orders. What did this upstart little outfit know that he didn't? And so driven by curiosity, he caught a cross-country flight, and he had dinner with the owners. And he came away from that meeting a changed man. He couldn't stop thinking about their company. Not long after returning to New York, he called the owners and he begged them to let him come and work for them. After much prodding, they agreed. He moved to Seattle. And five years later, Howard Schultz bought the company. Maybe you've heard of Starbucks. It's not little anymore. In fact, by altering how Americans think and drink coffee, think about and drink coffee, He's redefined the multi-billion dollar domestic coffee market. But let's go back to the beginning. What was it about this new company that so enchanted Howard Schultz? What was one thing? The owner's infectious enthusiasm for great coffee. 
In a day when Folgers and Maxwell House were the only brands most people knew, the folks at Starbucks were searching the globe for exotic, aromatic coffee beans. They were learning to roast them just so, blend them in precise proportions, and to refine the brewing process to exacting standards. They simply loved good coffee. Armed with passion and a good product, this one company completely changed the way millions of people think about coffee. Now, that's a neat business story. Passion for their product, all of that. But when you think about it, it's coffee. And Dr. Combs, uh, several years ago, got me into drinking Starbucks. (laughs) He and I meet most Mondays at a Starbucks by his choosing. It's my opportunity to try to straighten him out. But he insists that it be Starbucks. I hated Starbucks, but I've kind of gotten used to it. Uh, over the years. I mean, but really, the truth of the matter, whatever, you know, your favorite coffee is, whether it's Tim Hortons, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, making it at home, you're not a coffee drinker at all, the bottom line is it's still just coffee. And think about how jazzed people get about something that is that. It's just coffee. And that's why at the beginning of each year, we take some time to try to remind each of us what we really all ought to be jazzed about. And I'm going to try to make the case today and then throughout this month that we really ought to be very excited, enthusiastic about the mission that the Lord has given us and the vehicle through which he carries out that vision, namely his his church. I read that article about Howard Schultz and Starbucks many years ago, and the person who wrote it then related That enthusiasm they had to the same topic, to the church, and it was a very helpful article for me. Many years before that, I read a one-page, very short article by the then president of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Dr. Roland McCune, now with the Lord. But he wrote this just a short article in uh, the print organ of the seminary at that time. And here's just one paragraph of, of what he said. He mentions 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I think we might have those on the screen. Do we have that passage? Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, and then here's verse 15, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Now notice, conduct themselves where? In God's household. God's household is the church of the living God, and the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So Dr. McCune writes this article. He cites that passage, and then he says this. The Apostle Paul said that the church was the pillar and foundation of the truth. That this refers to the local church is clear from the preceding clause where the church is the sphere in which Timothy and those he leads are to conduct themselves. And I remember reading that and then reading it over again. Where he says, it's clear that this refers, those lofty titles, God's household, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. They obviously refer to the church, but not just to the church. They refer, he says, to the local church. And he says that's clear Because 
the place in which Timothy is to carry out what Paul had said in the previous chapters. I've written you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Well, where are they going to do this conducting, this behavior? And just that simple statement arrested my attention. Really? The local church is all that? God's household? The family of God? The pillar and the foundation of the truth? Contrary to, some of you may have grown up with a Roman Catholic background, contrary to Roman Catholicism, the church is not the truth. Roman Catholicism teaches that it is the truth, and it takes passages like this to mean that. But notice, it doesn't say that. It says it's it's the, the foundation. God used the church to establish his work and to give us his and to give us his word through his apostles. It upholds the truth, thus it's the pillar of the truth. But the truth is found in God's word. And the church has bequeathed that to us through the apostles, and the church, the local church, upholds that. So here, local assemblies, churches, that honor God and preach his word and give his gospel, that are designed and formulated, established, structured the way the New Testament says, they are these things, God's family, the pillar and the foundation of the truth, the church of the living God. It was very sobering to me, and it was new to me, to think about the local church in those terms. Because when I would read a passage like that, I wouldn't think local church. I wouldn't think places like Community Bible Church. What I would think when it says church of the living God and God's household and the pillar and foundation of truth, I wouldn't think local churches, that is, churches in a particular location. I would think of what's sometimes called the universal church. Perhaps you've heard that term. And the Bible does, on a handful of occasions in the New Testament, it does use the word church to refer to every person who's part of the body of Christ, every person who belongs to Christ, every person who has been adopted into his family, no matter where they're located, no matter what denomination they're part of, any of that, they are part of the body of Christ. And that's sometimes called rightly, the universal church. But that's used a handful of times. And in this passage, the context is very clearly, as Dr. McCune said, it's not talking about the universal church. It's talking about the expression of the universal church in particular locations. In this case, 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the city of Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor. And Paul His mentor is writing to his pastor protege, Timothy, and he's telling him, this is how God's work through his church in Ephesus ought to be conducted. And so in chapter 2, if you were to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, you don't need to do that, but if you were to do that, you can can go there and right at the beginning of chapter 2, your Bible would undoubtedly have a title at the top of chapter 2. It'll say something like principles of worship or rules for worship. And the beginning in verse 1, Paul begins to give instructions. Just like he said, I've written you these instructions. And in chapter 2, he starts giving instructions for how worship ought to go in the life of the local church 
in the city of Ephesus and by extension for us here. He talks about prayers being given when the church gathers together. Prayers given for kings and those in authority. And he goes on to talk about the role of women in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy in the local church and its, and its body life. And then he comes to, to chapter 3 and he begins to give qualifications for leaders in the church. Some of you may remember that 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 says that he did, that desires the office of, the King James says the office of a bishop, but the, uh, the word is overseer, and that word overseer in the New Testament is interchangeable with pastor. It's the same office. So he that desires the office of a pastor desires a good work. Now, verse 2, a pastor must be, and then it begins to give the qualifications for one who would be a pastor in God's church. And that goes all the way down to verse number 7. And then in verse 8 of First Timothy chapter 3, it says deacons likewise. And then it gives qualifications for, for the deacons. And then in verse 12, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it says, and also their wives, the deacons' wives. Here are qualifications for the deacons' wives in the local church. And then comes back, says some more about the deacons uh, in verse 13. And then you come full circle, verse 14. I've written you these instructions. What instructions? How worship ought to go. How prayers ought to go in the worship service. The role that women are to play in the life of the church, including in, in worship. The qualifications for those who would be leaders in God's church. Pastors, deacons. And pastors' wives, and I, Paul, have written to you, Timothy, pastor at Ephesus, these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Where? God's household. What is it? The church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, because that's what the local church is, and it is, and because then this local church is that, God's family, God's household, pillar and foundation of the truth, church of the living God. Am I right that this is a really important endeavor we're involved in? Do you see why then we'll take a month at the beginning of the year to remind ourselves of what we are the, as the church are supposed to be about? And how we fit into it? Let me just be so bold as to say, friends, there's nothing that you have going on. There's nothing that you have going on. There's nothing that I have going on that's more important than the work of God through His church. Everything that you do and everything that I do is to be centered around the mission to which God has called us collectively to carry out through his household, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Our personal lives, our family lives, the reason that we are raising our children the way we are and the reason we team together to have parenting seminars to help us do that in a biblical and God-honoring way, all of that is ultimately tied to the purpose for which 
God has placed us here, left us here on earth, and brought us together in his church. And so the Bible uses those kinds of phrases to refer to the church. And makes the church absolutely central to what God's doing. Central. Now I'm going to prove that uh, over the next several minutes from the Bible. And if if you care to, you can write these down, these passages. But it starts with Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry. He's accomplished what he came to do. Namely, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death on the cross for his people. He lived, he died, he rose. And when you come to the end of his ministry, you find the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them which are about that, the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you get to the last chapter of each of those, they each record his final words before he ascends back to the Father. And the most famous of those is in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. And Matthew ends with these words. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations. Jesus says, this is what now I'm telling you all to do. I'm leaving. This is what I'm telling you to do. Go make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. Making disciples means baptizing them. That's what Jesus says. Go Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even into the very end of the age. So even though I'm physically leaving, I'm still with you. He had promised them, I'm going to give you my presence in God the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be able to establish and carry out this work. All right? Now, here's what I... Matthew, that's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Remember two words, uh, from, or one word from Matthew 28, 19, and it's the word baptizing. Just remember that because we'll come back to it. Baptizing. But Luke, one of the other gospel writers, does the same thing. He records the life and teaching and healing ministry of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And when he comes to the very last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24, he's in the same place that Matthew 28 is in terms of time. Luke 24, he records the final words of Jesus as well. He gives us some additional details about those final words. And he says this, beginning in verse 45. Repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in my name to all nations. Now, notice the all nations piece again. Remember, Matthew said, go and make disciples of what? All nations. Here's Luke filling in some additional details of those final comments from Jesus before he ascends back to the Father. And he says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name 
to all nations. And then he says, here's where it's going to start. He gives us additional detail. Beginning in Jerusalem. So here's what you get from Luke. In addition to what Matthew said about go make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them. Remember the word baptize, Luke 24. Here's the content of the message that's going to go to all nations. It's going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now remember those two things. I ask you to remember baptizing. Now remember those two. Repentance, forgiveness of sins. And that message of repentance and forgiveness of sins is going to be preached in my name to all nations, and it's going to start in Jerusalem. In verse 50, the final verse of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, Stay in the city until you receive power from on high. Stay in the city. Now, what city would that be? Where's this thing going to start? Okay, so go to Jerusalem and wait. And you come to the fifth book of your Bible, fifth book of your New Testament, the book of Acts. So titled because it's the actions of the apostles, the acts of the apostles, what the apostles did. That's what the 28 chapters of the book of Acts are about. So Jesus is given these final instructions. He says, you're going to... Go to all nations. This this mission is going to go to all nations. It's going to involve baptizing. It's going to involve preaching of forgiveness and repentance. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem and wait. When you come to the book of Acts now, that's what you find them doing. They're waiting. The Bible tells us that they are in a rented room doing what Jesus said, waiting. Now, if you do the math for how long they've been waiting... Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 says this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together waiting. And then it begins to happen. The Holy Spirit comes to begin, is given to begin this mission in Acts chapter 2. But that happens on something called the day of Pentecost which gives you a clue for how long they've been there. And in fact, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, that's the reason he says that. That's the reason he says when the day of Pentecost had fully come. He's giving you a time marker. So how long have they been there? Well, Luke had said previously in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 in verse 3, Acts 1-3. In Acts chapter 1 in verse 3, Luke had said, after Jesus had completed his earthly ministry and he gave instructions to the apostles that he had chosen. He says he he showed himself alive for 40 days by many convincing proofs. 40 days. So the Bible is saying that after Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't immediately ascend back to the Father, but he hung around for about six weeks. 40 days. And Luke starts Acts chapter 1 and says, he did that, there's the 40 days. And he gives these instructions to his apostles. These instructions being, go into all the world. Baptize. 
preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. He gives those instructions at the end of that 40-day period, and then he ascends back to the Father. So how much time has elapsed by the time you get to the day of Pentecost? Well, here's what Pentecost means. 50. You know, Pentagon, the reason the Defense Department building is called the Pentagon is because it's that a five-sided shape. It's a pentagon. So penta means five. Pentecost means 50. And it means this. It's a feast in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that took place 50 days after Passover. So when was Jesus crucified? Passover. So let's do the math now. There's Passover, there's Pentecost 50 days after. How many of those 50 days have been used up by the time you get to Acts chapter 2? Well, you got three days in the grave. And you got 40 days of him showing himself alive. You got 43 days used up. So when you do the math, Acts chapter 2 says when the day of Pentecost had fully come, Luke could have just said it this way. After they had been there about a week, but they've been waiting about a week. In obedience to what Jesus had said, stay in the city, city of Jerusalem, and then the Holy Spirit comes. And the the account in Acts chapter 2, Luke says, there were in Jerusalem at that time for Pentecost, Jews, now notice, Jews from every nation under heaven. You've heard that every nation thing before? What this is signifying is, this is the beginning of a worldwide mission. It's starting in Jerusalem, but Jesus had said it's going to go to all nations. He said that in Matthew 28, says that in Luke chapter 24. And now, when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, there are Jews gathered for the day of Pentecost, the feast of Pentecost, from every nation under heaven. And God does this miracle where people are able to speak to one another, even though they are from these different places, they were able to speak and people are able in languages that they had not learned and that those people are able to understand. Now, if you read the account in Acts chapter 2, twice Luke makes very clear that these are real human languages. These are languages that human beings spoke and that human beings could understand. So I'm just going to kick this dog and then I'll move on. But many of you know that there's this whole notion of speaking in tongues. You ever heard of that? And I grew up with that. I grew up Pentecostal. But the speaking in tongues that I saw in my Pentecostal church was not what Acts chapter 2 was doing. People were not speaking in foreign languages that other people understood. When people speak in tongues today, they speak in utterances that they don't understand and the people that are hearing them don't understand. And that's not what speaking in tongues was in the Bible. And it was for a particular purpose as well. It was to signify a sign that this mission has now begun. The promised Holy Spirit, the promised power now to begin this has now come. And it's going to go to all nations. So that 
happens in Acts, Acts chapter 2. And the people there at Pentecost, they're bewildered. Large crowds of people, they hear people speaking in languages they hadn't learned. They understand them. Luke actually lists, I don't remember the number of how many different languages and dialects, but he actually lists them in Acts chapter 2. And then they say, these people say, what's going on? These people are drunk. What's the explanation for this? And Peter stands up. Peter stands up to give an explanation, beginning in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. And I know Peter was a Baptist preacher. And the reason I know this is because his sermon is really long. (laughs) It goes, starts in verse 14, goes all the way to verse 36. And then in verse 37, the Bible says, and they were cut to the heart as they heard Peter's message. And they asked, Brothers, now what shall we do? What shall we do? And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter's response is this. Repent. Now, I told you to remember the word repentance, right? From Luke chapter 24. He says, repent. Repent and be baptized. And I ask you to remember the word baptized from Matthew chapter 28. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And remember, I ask you to remember that from Luke 24. All three elements, baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins. All of those three elements that Jesus said would be part of this worldwide mission that's going to start in Jerusalem are now part of what come out of Peter's mouth in that first Christian sermon. Here's what you do. This is the beginning of the mission. Now, we all on the same page. The great, what we call the Great Commission, started right there. And I'll tell you why that's important in a second. Now, if you're still awake and you hear me quote Acts 2.38 and it says, Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. You're going, do I have to be baptized to have my sins forgiven? Does baptism, is that part of my forgiveness of sins? There are churches that teach that and many of them teach that from this verse. So let me just quickly kick that dog, and then we'll move on. But the preposition for, for the forgiveness of sins, the Greek preposition ace, um, E-I-S, but that preposition is used two ways in the New Testament, just like it is in English. For is used two ways in English. One way is... In order to. So if I say go to the store for a gallon of milk. Then I'm saying go to the store in order to get a gallon of milk. And if that's the way it's being used in Acts 2.38. It would be repent, be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven. 
That's one way that preposition is used. But another way it's used, both in the New Testament Greek and today in English, is not in order to, but because of. So if I say someone got put in jail for a crime, or if someone got, uh, let's make it more applicable, so-and-so, not mentioning any names, got a ticket for speeding. They didn't get a ticket in order to speed. They got a ticket because they've already sped. Right? And that's the way it's being used in Acts 2.38. You are... You are baptized because of what Christ has done. And your forgiveness of sins for the forgiveness of sins is because of a forgiveness of sins that has already been given to you when you come to Christ. Not in order to get the forgiveness of sins. All right. So the mission starts in Acts 2.38. Clearly. Baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins, it's all there. They're in Jerusalem, starts here, now it's going to move forward. In Acts chapter 5, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Acts 1 5, Luke recaps what he left off with in Luke 24, and he records Jesus as saying that. You are going to be my witnesses. This is Acts 1.5. You're going to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And now in Acts 2, it started in Jerusalem. But it's going to move out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's going to go to all nations. Now, what does all that have to do with the church? What's all that got to do with body life? 2020 vision. Here's what it is. Not only did the Great Commission start in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, as evidenced by baptism, repentance, forgiveness in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, not only did the mission start there, but something else started at exactly the same time. You know what it was? The church. The church started at exactly the same time that the mission started in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Now, how do I know this? Well, glad you asked. Here's how I know. So I mentioned in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Acts 1, 5, that Luke records Jesus as saying, you're going to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. But he says, stay in the city, Because, verse 5, you will be baptized with the Spirit in a few days. In just a few days, Jesus says, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. Well, that happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had said, that's one of the things that's going to happen. As you wait for this power, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit in a few days. So at the time Jesus said that, it was something still in the future to get baptized with the Spirit. They were on the day of Pentecost. So guess what happens 
when the baptism of the Spirit occurs, baptism, uh, Spirit baptism occurs, guess what happens? The Bible says that what happens is when someone is baptized by the Spirit, they are placed into the body of Christ, the church. Did you know that? When, when one is baptized by the Spirit, he or she is made part of the body of Christ, the church. Here's how I know that. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. Paul says, we were all. Paul, the people to whom he was writing, the Corinthians, we were all of us baptized by one spirit into one body. It's the baptism of the spirit that places one into the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. So the question is, when did that first happen? When did the baptism of the Holy Spirit first happen? And I'm telling you it happened on the day of Pentecost. And I'm telling you the first time it happened was on the day of Pentecost for this reason. Because in Acts 1-5, Jesus said, in a few days, yet future, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. And then, as the book of Acts goes on, Peter goes to, in Acts chapter 10, he goes to the home of a Gentile man, a man named Cornelius. And he gives him the gospel, and Cornelius and his family are, are converted. And so now you've got a Gentile, and the Jews in Jerusalem are going, in effect, Peter, what are you doing? We don't want Gentile dogs in our Jewish church. Remember, all the apostles are Jews. Remember, it starts in Jerusalem, but it moves out into Judea and Samaria, starting in Acts chapter 8 and going forward. God tells Peter, I've got a particular person I want you to go and talk to. His name is Cornelius. He's in the city of Joppa. You go there and you give the gospel to him. He does Cornelius is converted and his house, but now we've got a Gentile invading the space. And Peter has to go back to the church in Jerusalem to explain. And that's what he does. In Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, it records Peter explaining to his Jewish friends what happened to bring about the conversion of this Gentile guy. And Peter recounts that he went there, he gave the gospel. Peter was hesitant to do that because he didn't want to go to a Gentile. God gave him a vision. You guys remember he got this vision of this sheet? Four corners, east, west, north, south, the corners of the earth. And in that sheet were animals of all types, including animals that in the first part of the Bible, Jews couldn't eat. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, it's okay for you to go to this Gentile. Kill and eat. This is for everybody. And now Peter's having to explain that to his Jewish friends. In Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. Acts 11, 15 and 16. 
And in recounting that, Peter says this. He says that God gave repentance to the household of Cornelius and gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did with us, and then he uses this phrase, at the beginning. So when he says at the beginning, what's he pointing to? Just like he did with us at the beginning. Where was that beginning? Pentecost. So the baptism of the Spirit occurred first, for the first time ever, on the day of Pentecost. At exactly the same time that the mission that Christ had given, that he's given to us, started. Starts in Jerusalem, moves outward to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And I want to give you these seven passages, and we'll be done. Because as you read through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, when when Acts chapter 1 and... I think I've been saying verse 5 for that, but Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Acts 1-8, says it'll begin in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Acts 1-8. When Acts 1-8 says that, that forms the outline for the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. If you want to read through the book of Acts and know why it's structured the way it is, why Luke, who wrote it, structured it the way he did, he tells you in the 8th verse of the first chapter. Because I, Luke, am going to show you the progress of the mission that Christ gave, beginning in Jerusalem, going outward to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And sure enough, as you go read forward now, in those 28 chapters, that's exactly what you find. It's Jerusalem. Then you find it moving outward to Judea and Samaria. And then you find it moving outward into Gentile territory, even to the capital of the empire in Rome. Now, how does that happen? It's all, all the action is in Jerusalem. Until you get to at the end of Acts chapter 7. Everything's happening in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 7, you may remember this famous incident. One of the first followers of Christ, in fact, one of the first deacons in the church at Jerusalem. He's named in Acts chapter 6 as one of the first deacons. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives this long sermon. He's a Baptist as well. And Stephen is stoned. He's killed. And at the end of Acts chapter 7, it tells us that there was a young man there holding the coats of those who were throwing the stones, approving of what they did. That young man's name was Saul of Tarsus, who would later, we would know as Paul. It's the first time we're introduced to that guy. And he's taking part in the killing of Stephen. But because Stephen is stoned, a persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 8 says, because this persecution has broken out, they were scattered. That's what it says. They were dispersed. And when they were dispersed, they went to Judea and Samaria. Look at that. Jesus said it's going to start in Jerusalem and then it's going to move out. 
And he used persecution, God did, to make that happen. That's happened throughout church history. That when the church is persecuted, the gospel spreads. It happened there. They spread into Judea and Samaria. This one Saul who was holding the coats, we see him in Acts chapter 9. The Lord appears to him. He's on the road to Damascus to go kill some more Christians. And the Lord appears to him. He's converted miraculously. And he becomes a light to the Gentiles. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And so now Paul begins his missionary journeys. You're familiar with those. The book of Acts ends in Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28 and verse 30. Paul is in Rome. He's at the capital of the empire. He's taken the gospel to what was then the ends of the earth, in effect. And now that continues through churches like ours. All right. Now, I said I want to give you these seven passages. Here they are. The outline of the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The church begins in Acts chapter 2. And in verse 47. So if you want these seven verses, here they are and we'll be done. Acts 2.47. Acts 2.47 is a summary verse of what took place on the day of Pentecost with the establishment of the first church in Jerusalem. And then you have another summary statement. Seven of these, that's the first of them, but another summary statement about the mission and the church going forward in the book of Acts. The next one is in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. So Acts 2.47, Acts 6 and verse 7, Another one of these summary statements. Then Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. 247, 67, 931, 1224, 247, Acts 67, Acts 931, Acts 1224, Acts 16 and verse 5, 16 and verse 5, Acts 19 and verse 20. And then the very last two verses of the entire book, chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. 247, 67, 931, 1224, 165, 1920, Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. Now, as you look at all of those progress reports, those seven progress reports, starting in Acts chapter 2, going all the way to Acts chapter 28, as you read that, friends, notice the centrality of the church in, in those. It's about the progress of the mission through the progress of the church. So here's my final statement. I'll let you go. The mission does not move forward apart from the church. The mission goes forward as the church goes forward. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. They started at the same time and they progressed together throughout the book of Acts and into our day. Now, with all that, I'm hoping you'll get jazzed about the church. Because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is God's household. The church is the vehicle through which the mission that Christ gave to his people takes place. And every one of us has a part to play in it. So next week in the 930 hour, 
and in this hour, and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at that together. Okay? Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this time to be able to consider, reconsider your mission in your world. And thank you, Lord, for giving us the instructions that you have for us, why you have left us on earth to carry out your work. And thank you as well for telling us how that work is to be carried out, for giving us the church to be your vehicle to spread your word to advance your mission. And thank you as well, Lord, for the grand, unbelievable privilege of being a part of it, that I get to be a part of your work in your world through your church, that every brother and sister here has the opportunity, the privilege to be a part of that as well. Help us to see it for what it is, that this is a blessing from you to your people, that we are part of something that not only lasts for time but for eternity. And then having been convinced that you have called all of your people into your church to band together to carry out your mission, having been convinced of that, now, Lord, over these next few weeks, help each of us to consider how we contribute what you've given to us, our time, our talent, and yes, our treasure, to move that forward. Go with us this week as we represent you as your ambassadors. Grant us safety, we ask. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.